This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Academy Award nominee The Great Beauty follows a writer as he leaves the lavish nightlife behind to discover the real beauty and truth in the timeless landscape of Rome. It's available on demand today. Josh Brolin is out for revenge after being in prison for 20 years in Spike Lee's Old Boy. That's available on demand starting on March 4th. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. This episode is also brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com svu. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Coming up on the show, we debate whether getting involved in a trade war in Asia also counts as one of those classic blunders as we discuss the second season of Netflix's original drama, House of Cards. Later in the show, we'll bring you Q Shots, where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. Inspired by House of Cards, Matt and I both schemed separately for completely different themes this week, all the while reassuring each other that we were in total agreement. It ended poorly. There were resignations. We were questioned by Congress. Phone records were subpoenaed. And then in the end, we decided, oh, hell, let's just talk about Kevin Spacey. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies On Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few no- notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this week? Our first pick is going to be available on February 21st. It's actually going to be exclusive to Comcast and Time Warner Cable. So it's just for our uh, listeners who are subscribers to those services. And it's called Cheap Thrills. It's directed by E.L. Katz, and it's about a pair of old friends, played by Pat Healy and Ethan Embry, who meet again by chance at a bar. Healy's character is a, he's a new dad, he's got a bad job, he needs money, and that's what makes him particularly susceptible to the manipulations of this other couple the two guys meet at this bar. And they're played by David Kickner and Sarah Paxton, and they get off on daring people to do stuff for money. So it starts out as this very easy way to kind of have some fun at a bar, make a couple of bucks. But then uh, the foursome, they head from the bar to the couple's home, and the stakes of the bet start to rise, and 
things start to get a little more interesting and, and dangerous. I'm Colin. This is my wife, Violet. It's Violet's birthday today, so we thought we'd go out on the town, get a little crazy. Violet and I came up with this idea for an awesome night. What do we have to do? Whichever you fellas does the shot first, gets 50 bucks. Boom. Wait, what? Oh! It's meanwhile, wait, what? <laughs> I'll give you two hundred dollars. Whoever touches that stripper with a slap. Hey, you the one who hit one of our girls? No, I swear to God. Five hundred bucks if you hit him first. Whoa! It's a, a very simple premise, but it's a fascinating study of human behavior. I think uh, plenty of us can can understand being frustrated by our jobs and and the state of our bank accounts. And by the way, you know, sometimes you're live. It feels like it's out of your control. It's beyond your control. You're just kind of going along in this one way and you can't do anything about it. And this is a great platform to explore those ideas without being didactic or, you know, talky about it in the slightest. I mean, it's just this roller coaster, this nonstop game of excitement and horror and comedy as these dares get progressively crazier and crazier. And uh, in the spirit of it, I'm going to dare you right now, Alison, for $500 to to – Mm. Uh oh, you don't have a dare. No, I gotta. How about you eat the contents of that vacuum cleaner? Let me see the right five hundred dollars first. Well, I have to consult with my attorney, and <laughs> and uh, I'm gonna have to get a cashier's check just to you know. Uh -huh. I, have to, I have to deduct it on my Cold, taxes. Cold hard cash. I like that you actually were willing. If I had perhaps produced, if you had it there, we could have had a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Alas, well, maybe this is something we should kickstarter in the future. Yeah, let's please do that. <laughs> Make Allison eat <laughs> the, the, contents the contents of, of a of a of a disgusting vacuum cleaner, and it is disgusting. It's just be the used. equivalent of my eating half of your dog, basically. Essentially, that yeah. is yeah. It's it's like thirty percent dog hair yeah. in there. Yeah, it's pretty gross. But oh well. I, again, if you want to send a donation <laughs> to start this fund, the email address, as always, is svu at uh, filmspottingsvu.com. I may not have learned the lesson I was supposed to from. It's cheap thrills. I'm realizing maybe, that yeah, now. Maybe not. It sounds like it could be an interesting pairing with Compliance. Uh, yes, in... another Pat Healy film. Yes, uh, yes. I definitely, well, I haven't seen it yet, but reading about it, it seemed like it touched on a few ideas about what, where people are willing to go in, Absolutely. in kind of these unusual social situations. Definitely. If you like the actor Pat Healy and also movies about how far people <laughs> can be pushed to do things they wouldn't normally do in strange situations. There you go. There you go. It's a double it's bill. A it's, it's a, a double niche. bill to... Uh, <laughs> But even if you if you you don't want to watch them both, which would make for an intense evening, it's a it's a really good movie. It's worth checking out. So that's Cheap Thrills, and it'll be available starting on February twenty first on Comcast and Time Warner Cable. Uh, our next two picks are available to all uh, cable subscribers, as far as I know. And the first one is called Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa, or just Alan Partridge. I think in some places it might just be called that in the U.S. It was released in England as. Alan Partridge, colon, Alpha Papa. It's directed by Declan Lowney, and it's available on VOD starting on February 27th. Uh, in the United States, Steve Coogan, the star here, is probably best known for more of his cult films with Michael Winterbottom, like 24-Hour Party People, or maybe he's done some mainstream stuff. He was the co-star of Around the World in 80 Days. Uh, just recently, he uh, co-wrote, co-stars in Filomino, one of the uh, Best Picture Oscar nominees this year. So, But in England, really, he's best known as a comedian, as a, as a comedian, and his most famous creation is definitely Alan Partridge, this very insecure, very superficial radio television host. Uh, he's played the character on radio, on TV, 
But this is the first film with Alan Partridge in it. It's actually co-written by In the Loop and Veep's Armando Iannucci. Who is great. The film itself is about a hostage situation at the radio station where uh, Alan Partridge works. And I think he winds up becoming the negotiator who has to talk <laughs> down a disgruntled co-worker. The Alan Partridge TV shows have not always been easy to see in the U.S. When I, me- where, when I remember when I worked at Kim's, we actually used to rent like bootlegs, I think, of the v- like VHS tapes of the show, which yeah. tells you both how long ago that was and how hard it was to find <laughs> because they were not. I don't think they were CDs or DVDs. I think they were VHS tapes, <laughs> and people used to rent them too. Which uh, you know, this was back in the day. Back in the day, I think you. Can, I think they're available now. You can actually buy them on like on Amazon, or you can you can get your hands on the the series on DVD, but. I don't really know how much of the show is required as a prerequisite for the film. I'm guessing none. They're releasing it here. And they're right. having, and the, you know, show, the show, I don't think, ever played. If it did play on a Maybe on, on BBC Network, America yeah, or something. It, it did very... not get watched by many people right. to make a so, big splash. Here, right. So. so they're expecting people who haven't seen the show to see this movie. It's getting a release, I think, from Magnolia. So, yeah. So I'm definitely, I, you know, I've seen a little of the TV show, but I just like Steve Coogan. So I'm really interested in checking this out. That's Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa, or maybe just Alan Partridge, available on February 27th. And finally, available on February 20th is the film Jimmy P, colon, Psychotherapy of a Plains Indian. Uh, No extra colon Alpha Papa on this one. Directed by uh, Arnaud Desplechen, an excellent director. Uh, He's the guy who made films like Kings and Queen and A Christmas Tale. I think this is his first film since A Christmas Tale, which is like five years ago. Has an excellent pair of lead actors, Benicio Del Toro and Matthew Almerich, who is in most of Desplechen's films. He plays uh, George... Devereaux, who's a was a real life psychiatrist who treated this person, this Jimmy P. This is it's a you know it's based on a real case. That's Del Toro's character. He's a Native American who suffers from you know all kinds of trauma essentially in the wake of World War II. He comes back sort of a broken man, and their relationship and their friendship is sort of about how he you know is his therapist and also his friend. It, it, the film played at Cannes. Got a bunch of good reviews, but it's gotten a very quiet release. Hasn't gotten, you know, really any attention at all. Maybe the title, Jimmy P, <laughs> Psychotherapy of a Plains Indian. Lacking a little something? I don't know. It may not be helping much. <laughs> uh, but, you, you know, you can't always judge a book by its cover. You can't always judge a film by its title. So, you know, that the, the director and the, uh, the stars here, they, they make me very curious to check it out. I'm looking forward to that one as well. That's Jimmy P, Psychotherapy of a Plains Indian. And I'm actually realizing it's available now, actually. February 20th, after, when we're recording this, is several days ago. So, Jimmy P, Psychotherapy of a Plains Indian, available now. Allison, we're going to get to our cue shots and Kevin Spacey in just a second. But first, we want to give a shout out to Audible, who we are quite pleased to have back as a sponsor of Film Spotting SVU. Audible.com, of course, is the leading provider of audiobooks on the internet with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction and nonfiction and periodicals. And for our audience members, Audible is offering a free audiobook. To give you a chance to try out their service, and I think, Allison, you have a recommendation for our listeners if they're wondering what they should get. Yes, I've been trying to read a bit more just for pleasure, which is really difficult to do when there's so many good things to watch as well. But one of the books that I have been uh, about to revisit and that I really like, not related to film at all, except that... I think it was picked up for consideration for a TV series or film and, you know, as many properties are. But it is The Magicians, written by Lev Grossman, who is a senior writer and book critic uh, for Time magazine. It's, It's often interesting to see the kind of 
novels or films that critics turn out. Mm -hmm. And he has made what could be called, uh, I think it gets described as Harry Potter for adults. And I think that sells it a little short. It is a kind of Harry Potter-ish story about a school for magicians, but it's also like that by way of Jonathan Franzen. It's got a lot of uh, a darker side to it and a kind of uh, a pretty serious treatment of its characters and ideas about being an overachiever and ideas about the pursuit of happiness and uh, kind of childhood fantasies. It's a great book and that's it's part of the reason I've been about wanting to revisit it. And I think the idea of listening to it as an audiobook is also very promising because it's uh, it's the kind of story that would carry over well. And this one's narrated by the actor Mark Bromhall. So that's The Magicians. It's written by Lev Grossman. And I highly recommend it uh, if you're looking for a good read or listen, especially listen in this case. You know, try it out on us. Okay, so to download The Magicians for free or another book of your choice, Go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. That's audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. You got to know when to hold up. Know when to fold up. Know when to walk away. And know when to run. You never count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting. When the dealing's done. So we're going to talk about Kevin Spacey, not just an actor, but also an executive producer on House of Cards, and I think pretty central to its success as a series. He's had a, a pretty interesting and uh, deep career as an actor, and, and definitely in starting out in smaller roles and growing into stardom. Do you have any thoughts on how his career has gone or like his interest? He's got a kind of interesting place as a leading man. He does. He does. And it's interesting because when I was about uh, when, I mean, in my teenage years, so this is the mid nineties we're talking about, which I think a lot of the picks we're going to talk about come from that period. Kevin Spacey was my favorite actor, at least working at that time. Interesting. Just, I mean, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that he was in a lot of the most interesting movies of that period. I mean, movies like The Usual Suspects and L.A. Confidential. I mean, those were really powerful movies to me when I was 15, 16. Seven, remember? Seven. He was the, That's right. Yeah, he's the John killer. Doe. And they kept him secret. They kept him even secret. Though- it made no it needed it wasn't necessary right he was not a character in the movie until he's introduced as the killer right right it wasn't really a surprise except on you know for people who were, when he showed up you're like oh my god it's, it's kevin, kevin spacey. spacey right and he wasn't even that big at the time no. this is like 95 i think is seven so yeah, i think so yeah he's fairly unknown at that point but yeah they did yeah i don't think he was credited in the movie to sort of keep it a mystery you're right uh yeah so there's another one that he was in from that period I, and he was just i just was really kind of drawn to his sort of like, I don't know, his choices, not just on screen, but like in the movies he picked, he seemed to have incredible taste. And, and all the movies he made for a little, a brief period uh, were ones that I really liked. And, and it's funny because now I had, at least until House of Cards kind of came back along and rejuvenated his career in my eyes, it's sort of like, I was like, what happened to that guy? You know, he, I know he's been working uh, overseas. He works for what, the Old Vic Theater and does. Yeah, in London. He does something. He's like their director or artistic he, director. Yeah. So, like, he's been making less movies. And the stuff he's made in a lot of cases have been kind of underwhelming. Uh, you know, like 21. I know he was in 21, which was a not very good movie about, uh, you know, like poker and, you know, uh, 
He was Lex Luthor in Superman Returns. Right. He was in, I didn't watch this, but it's on Netflix if you're curious, a movie called Inseparable, which is entirely I... Chinese funded. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I saw that on there. And it's like, what is this movie? It's a I don't Chinese, even know it. Like block, or not even blockbuster necessarily, but a mainstream Chinese movie. I don't think it ever got released in theaters here. If it did, it got a very nominal release. But he is a star of it, of wow. it next to Daniel Wu. How weird. It's right? a little strange. Yeah, his, his career in the last, you know, 15 years or so is. It, it's gone in different places than you would have expected after that first kind of big five, seven year period where he became a big star in movies like Usual Suspects and L.A. Confidential. Uh, before we get to our picks, is there anything you want to say about him like on screen specifically, well, think, the types of roles he's yeah, good at? I think that the types of roles I've liked him in, I've tended to like him in the most, are ones in which he's almost – there's like a tension of him essentially being a character actor who feels he should be lead – you know, he's I, I mean, I feel like that's that's kind of the theme in The Usual Suspects, right? In a lot right. of ways, is that he is the this character who's treated as a side character, but he's also the narrator and very central to the story in ways right. that, you know, are very complicated. But uh, that I, I feel that, I, you know, like he is such an interesting leading man in that he doesn't fit any of the usual leading man mold. You know, he's not a particularly like a uh, extremely handsome guy as much as he's like, you know, as good looking as any normal you know, Hollywood actor. He's not a very good romantic lead. He's very right. rarely cast in those types of roles. Mm -hmm. You know, he's very talented, but in a very specific way and in ways where often we like him to play this kind of sniveling character or an evil character or like a character who has to kind of fight his way towards the center of the movie, mm. which is one of the reasons I think the role in House of Cards suits him so well is that That's the he's, whole thrust of the that whole character. thrust of the character is that he's and been it, pushed aside and he's going to fight his yeah. way back to the spotlight. And I, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, I mean, I haven't a lot of his like more traditional kind of leading man or like Hollywood roles have been like hit forward or k-packs you know or yeah even even as the villain in superman returns i don't think it was all that memorable it, you know it's not necessarily he doesn't fit very easily into a hollywood mold mm. which is maybe why neither of us has kind of paid a lot of attention to his recent roles maybe is that you know he needed something kind of off like unusual to really play to his skills right um that's, yeah that's an interesting way to look at it i honestly hadn't really considered that that almost meta aspect of it that he's like the character actor who demands attention attention must be paid to me and then almost goes out and, and proves it by being a, you so know good. a, a steam yes. sealer yeah i mean that's really what made him into a more of a star is that he was so great in movies like the usual suspects you know that he was such a scene stealer uh that's that's an interesting point i you know looking at his filmography this week watching a few of his movies over again what I started to see sort of emerging, or one of the things at least, was this tendency to play – and again, House of Cards, I think, which is why he's so great and it fits perfectly into this, is that he tends to play – or when he's very good, I think, he's often playing like the guy – the smartest guy in the room. And often he's pretending not to be right. the smartest guy. Right. Yeah. He's underestimated. And, and he, he is a great sort of on-screen liar an on-screen manipulator. You know, yeah. he's wonderful at saying something and meaning another and tricking everyone on screen, but letting the audience in on knowing 
that he is duplicitous. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's very overt in House of Cards where he literally talks to the audience and we're almost the co-conspirators. Right. And we can talk more about that. But even in movies where he's not breaking the fourth wall or that overtly manipulative, he has these little moments where gestures or smirks that kind of clue you in to, like, th- that side of it that he's really enjoying uh, kind of controlling people or controlling the situation. And that's something that could be said of a lot of the movies. We, we already mentioned Usual Suspects a bunch of times. I think that fits perfectly. I know that fits perfectly with two, my, both of my picks. So I think that's definitely in there as well. And it's interesting because, you know, I wonder, like you said, those movies that don't fit in, and like a lot of the later movies – uh, like the pay it forwards or even like American Beauty where he yeah. won an Academy Award for that part. But it's not really playing to a lot of his strengths. It's not. You know, that 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 guy is not really who he came to be famous playing on screen. And it's he's never really returned to anything like that since then. And, you know, that's a movie that that was right in my Kevin Spacey Sweet wheelhouse. Spot, yeah. yeah. And I liked that movie a lot at the time. And it hasn't aged all that well. I ha- I didn't have a chance to rewatch it this week. I'm kind of dreading. I actually don't want to go back and rewatch it. It's not it. one that I feel a great urge to go back and rewatch. Yeah. Yeah. And we should mention before we finish this also, he has directed two movies. Yes. Uh, they're both actually very kind of, they're different classic examples of when an actor directs a movie. Uh, you know, Albino Alligator, in which he did not star. Right. It's kind of like this very claustrophobic you know, play It's like a stage play yeah, that's filmed about like criminals and a hostage situation. That's on uh, Netflix. If yes. anyone wants to check it out, I've actually never seen that movie. I have seen it and remember very little about it. Okay. It's one that used to play on like IFC a lot, mm-hmm. but um, I remember it being like pretty solid. I having like as often is the case with actors directing has good right. performances. Good performances. Yeah, yeah, I think Matt Dillon is in it, right? Yeah, I think so. Matt Dillon, Faye Dunaway, and Gary Sinise. Yeah, yeah so it's a nice little cast. And but then, no Kevin Spacey. He's no just Kevin the director. Spacey. He's just a director. And then Beyond the Sea, which is like your classic oh. passion project gone wrong. Yes. Yeah, in which he stars as Bobby Darren. Sings. He sings. Right. He sings. He directs. He dances. Yeah. He acts. In terms he of romances he, Kate Bosworth, yes. I think. If you want to make the narrative about the kind of, you know, the, this whole idea of the supporting act, character actor kind of fighting his way to the spotlight, this would be kind of maybe the proof of that. Of Interesting. Him, you know, being like all singing, all dancing, you know, star in this classic biopic. Not, a, you know, even though he, I think he was nominated for a Golden Globe for this. It's not one I would recommend but I mean, it's, 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 it's almost a fascinating mess because it's so bizarre. It I is. Mean, and also just like for the way for the project that he would choose for himself, the project that, you know, is his passion project. This is the thing. There's something kind right. of interesting about that. Yeah. And he again and, and Bobby Darren, at least as he plays him, is not the master manipulator who's the smartest guy in the room. Right. You know, that's not that's not really that's not what that guy <laughs> is. I, I mean, the one thing I will say to his credit and then we should get to our picks is just uh he can sing. Yeah. You know, like he has a good voice. And and it's funny, you mentioned before we started this strange fact that before he became an actor, he was what, Allison? A, briefly a stand-up comedian. A stand-up comedian, which, try. which blew my mind. And then I realized, I remembered that in that period, like when I was a big Kevin Spacey fan, he did host Saturday Night Live and did a fabulous job. And he sang and he did impressions. He's in that famous, uh, like the Star Wars audition 
real sketch. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember You know, that. it was around the time of the special editions, and they had famous – it was like the cast doing uh, impressions of actors who didn't get the part. So it was like Walter Matthau pretending to be Obi-Wan Kenobi or – you know, Christopher Walken trying to star as Han Solo, that sort of thing. And Spacey did a couple of the impressions, and they were hilarious. Like, he has those chops, too, but he hasn't really used them in a lot of movies. And when he did try to use the singing component, it became Beyond the Sea, which yeah. is not so good. <laughs> but let's get to our picks, because he yes. has, does have some good movies. He does. And why don't you start, Allison? What's your sure. first pick? So I, I went with a pick from earlier in his career, and it's one that's it's really interesting to revisit because – because of the cast in it, he is, you know, certainly the least famous person in Glengarry Glen Ross at the time, which is currently streaming on Netflix, written by David Mamet, of course, directed by James Foley, who is one of the regular directors on House of Cards now. Interesting. In both the first and second season. I forgot that. Yeah. Yeah. 1992 film. Uh, you know, Spacey is the office manager, John Williamson, of the real estate company in which all of these salesmen are kind of desperately trying to save their jobs. You know, the cast also, of course, includes Alec Baldwin, who has the famous speech, Al Pacino, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin, Jonathan Price. In 1992, Kevin Spacey was, you know, not a big star, but he holds his own so well in this as essentially the antagonist who, you know, withholds the good leads from the desperate Shelley Levine played by Jack Lemmon and toys with him and kind of has his act at first where it seems like he's kind of a petty tyrant, you know, he's getting his own back against um, someone who used to be a top salesman, but maybe isn't anymore. Maybe he's just cruel, but then as the story unfolds, he kind of really just puts his foot on the neck of, of Jack Lemmon's character in a way that's, very memorable you know this is a film filled with big performances everyone is trying to steal this film you know that al might pacino, be an understatement al pacino is in this film <laughs> but i it's amazing how well spacey you know kind of holds his own in this crowd of like uh, of actors showing off essentially which is i think what this movie is oftentimes in a very pleasurable way he plays the character who has in many ways, the least showy moments. And yet uh, he's, he is particularly good. And I think this plays to a lot of those strong points, you know, as you said, he's very good at being the person who's much smarter than, uh, than he lets on. And this is a movie in which everyone is trying to sell things, not necessarily just the real estate, but sell themselves Mm -hmm. and their place in the company and their importance and why they deserve the good Glengarry leads. Mm -hmm. And he, Turns out to be much more on top of things and also much being felt like much more uh, dismissive and a little cruel than I, I think you ever understand at first. Usually I take the contracts to the bank. Last night I didn't. Last night I stayed home with my kids. How did you know that? One night in a year. I left the contract on my desk. No one knew that but you. Now, how did you know that? You want to talk to me or you want to talk to someone else? Because this is my job. This is my job on the line and you are going to talk to me. And there's something that's very interesting in that character that I think, you know, you can see a bit of it in his House of Cards character as well. Uh, You know, John Williamson is much smaller time. And, but he understands people really well and in a a movie that is all about understanding human nature and how to manipulate 
he actually he's in there as well. He's he's just as good at it, at it as the better salesman. Um, so it's a, it's definitely you know I think this is a movie where if you tend to remember anything of it, you remember either Jack Lemmon's character, or who's like your classic desperate salesman character, or you remember Alec Baldwin giving the speech, the great speech. But Spacey is uh, very impressive in this movie, and you know has a bigger role than I remembered. Um, and so it, it's one that's it's really interesting to take another look at again, and also just because. It, you know, he's played characters that are variations on this. Like the, he plays a good businessman. He plays a good uh, guy in the industry. And uh, this is this is a kind of early example of one of these roles, and an early example of how well he does it. That is Glengarry Glen Ross, and it is streaming on Netflix. Okay, well, and not much more needs to be said about that one. That's a great pick. I mean, it's a that's a that's a great film. Uh, my first pick. It's from around that same period. What year was Glengarry Glen Ross? Ninety two. Ninety two. So this is a couple years later, and now he's got his he's got a lead. And he makes the most of it. It's a film called Swimming with Sharks from 1994, written and directed by a gentleman by the name of George Wang. This is streaming right now on Netflix and Amazon Prime. And, yeah, the, this guy, George uh, Wang, I I mean, his career never really went anywhere after this. He didn't do it. He's done some writing work, but, he, you know, it, uh, he didn't really kind of pan out into a major filmmaker but he did a decent job with this movie he was a actually a former assistant at columbia pictures and he used those experiences to shape this story which is about a young and idealistic assistant played in the film by frank whaley who gets ground down by his job as the assistant to the senior vice president at fictional keystone pictures the guy's name is buddy ackerman and he is played by Kevin Spacey. And I don't think Swimming with Sharks is a fabulous movie. I think the ending is way too clever for its own good and straining for this kind of like dark, uh, almost like Twilight Zone-ish kind of ending. Okay. But Spacey is fantastic in it. It's a wonderful showcase for him. And it's one of those early ones where you got to see how good he could be on screen in one of those kind of smartest guy in the room type roles here he plays the ultimate hollywood bully he throws books and bagels and he's constantly screaming at him and cursing at frank whaley in front of the entire office he steals his ideas he gives him zero credit it's really i mean when you mention in the in glengarry glenn ross where he's like the least showy part he made up for it in this movie where he is the most showy part i mean everyone else is really just standing around watching him just chew the scenery uh, swallow it, digest it slowly, and then excrete it. I mean, it is just the, – it's the Kevin Spacey show. But because I was such a big Spacey fan after The Usual Suspects and LA Confidential, like I said, I definitely saw this when I was a teenager, and I liked it okay. Um, and I definitely assumed at the time that this was 100% like what it's like to work at a movie studio. Uh, and later intern internships I had at, at a few of them suggested the film was not that much of an exaggeration, <laughs> although the, the – the, uh, the, the the real Buddy Ackermans of the world weren't quite so mean. They were more subtle about their insidious natures. But anyway, that's a that's a story for another time. But just to say that there is sort of a kernel of truth to this that I can recognize. But it is interesting watching this movie again, which I did last night for the first time in maybe fifteen years. And you know, as a kid watching this movie, you you sort of associate with the Frank Whaley character, and you 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 root for him, and and you feel for him. And now, as a guy in his 30s, I'm watching this movie, and while Kevin Spacey's character is horrible, 
I really appreciated sort of the intri- again the intricacies, those glimmers, those the, the the stuff that's sort of between the lines that Spacey is putting in there. And then at the end of the movie, he has a very interesting speech because the whole film is sort of framed where the Frank Whaley character, and this is not a spoiler because it happens at the beginning of the movie. He sort of kidnaps the Kevin Spacey character and like holds him hostage and kind of berates him. And then through flashbacks, we see his career at the the movie company. So that's going on the whole movie. And at the end, Kevin Spacey finally gets to sort of like answer his charges essentially. And he gives this fascinating speech, not about how he's been misunderstood, but that essentially that the Frank Whaley character uh, is, is impatient and that, that you know, like he's like, I did, I I put up with your garbage for a year, and 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 Kevin Spacey says, I put up with that garbage from someone else for ten years. I waited my turn, you know, like, and he has this really interesting speech about how the younger generation of people are impatient and they 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 feel entitled and they want their spot. And millennials and, hadn't even been invented yet. And, and what's so fascinating <laughs> is the, the that he was probably right then, and he's more right now, which I, is. <laughs> absolutely fascinating is that this horrible villain who's so despicable kind of likable in his awfulness because he's so shameless about it that there that he may also be right in some ways which i found very interesting to catch up with see that's the trouble with your mtv microwave dinner generation you all want it now you think you deserve it just because you want it it doesn't work like that you have to earn it you have to take it you have to make it yours but first, guy, you need to decide what it is you really want. It's 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 a, it's a good movie, not a great movie, a great performance from Kevin Spacey. And if you've never seen it and you like Kevin Spacey on like House of Cards where he's really chewing the scenery too, I think you'll enjoy this one too because it's a lot of screaming and, and it's big. It's broad. It's a lot of fun. So that's Swimming with Sharks. It's streaming now on Netflix and Amazon Prime. All right. My other pick is another one about a company in like – a short period of time. I think it actually would make a really good double feature with Glengarry Glen Ross. It is Margin Call, mm. which is currently streaming on Amazon, iTunes, Google, Vudu, YouTube, and other places, um, or currently re- rentable on those places. It's the 2011 film that's directed by J.C. Chandor. It was his first film. He's gone on to make All is Lost. But it is set... If Glengarry is actually set in two days in a real estate office, Margin Call is set in 36 hours in a Wall Street investment bank that sets off, basically, is not entirely responsible for, but does set off the 2008 financial crisis. And in it, interestingly, Kevin Spacey plays uh, Sam Rogers, who is like the very compromised voice of moral morality and and kind of restraint he is the floor manager on this firm where they've just done layoffs and he's trying to rally his troops when it becomes clear that one of their one of the people spots that they need to dump these assets that are that are kind of too risky and essentially by unloading them they start the financial crisis but he is the person who tries to say, you know, this is going to wreck the economy. This is like our dumping these assets will crash the economy and is overruled. And then is the one who has to go out into the room and tell the traders to do this thing and basically blow up their careers in doing this, but will be paid out. You know, like he is the guy who knows that this is wrong and yet also has to rally the troops and has to he's great. He's the tired one. He's the one who's like beat up by the system and it, 
it's an interesting role for him, especially after a lot of these roles that he's done before this, in which he is the shark, right? He is the guy with the killer instinct or the one who is willing to be, to reveal himself for being ruthless underneath, that he is so tired and just wary and yet unable to kind of pull away from the system. It, it's a role that works really well for him, even though I think that this this movie is stacked with a lot of kind of very memorable, sh like kind of quietly showy turns. Zachary Quinto, Paul Bettany, Demi Moore, who's good in this as well, Simon Baker, the, Jeremy Irons, eventually, they're like levels, like bosses in a video game, they're revealed <laughs> on like, like upper and upper levels of this, of this investment bank. The real question is, who are we selling this to? Same people we've been selling it to for the last two years, and whoever else will buy it. But John, if you do this, you will kill the market for years. It's over. And you're selling something that you know has no value. We are selling to willing buyers at the current fair market price so that we may survive. You will never sell anything to any of those people ever again. I understand. Do you? Do you? This is it. I'm telling you, this is it. Spacey it does definitely makes a mark and it's interesting in that he it's the movie starts off with layoffs like you know large layoffs in this company including some people who have been there for years and he is in his office crying and it turns out to be over his dog mm. his dog is dying of cancer not over all of the people whose lives are like devastated at the moment from being mm -hmm. laid off but it, it does provide the kind of nice through line in a movie that often seems to be about people who are just you know it's totally unabashed about the consequences of their actions that he has an emotional arc it's just one that seems very largely unrelated to these pretty lousy things he's asked to do throughout the movie um and also the the final scene of the movie which i, I won't spoil even though it's not really related to the plot but it does seem to connect really well to the first scene yes. in house of cards <laughs> dogs are involved mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh margin call is a movie i like a lot it's very different from all is lost certainly but it's a it's a it was a very impressive first film and it's got a fantastic cast uh, kevin spacey is one of just as many actors i've mentioned and they all tend to do a pretty great job in this. Um, so that's Margin Call, available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, Google, Vudu, and other rental places. All right, another good pick. And as I'm sitting here listening, I think there's two more things we should say sort of on a general sense as I'm like sort of these things are sort of uh, uh, coalescing in my mind as we're sitting here. One is that he definitely has a political side, which has uh, come up in – House of Cards comes up in Margin Call and a lot of the stuff he's done, I think. I think he was even in Recount, right, the HBO uh, movie? Yes, he was. Yeah, so I think that's something. And then also not just politics but also office politics. I think that's what we're kind of seeing here is Glengarry Glenn Ross, uh, uh, Swimming with Sharks. Margin call. This, this sort of like the he's like the sniveling champion of office politics. And interestingly enough, my next film does not really take place in an office, but I think there's a way to sort of see it as a kind of ridiculous and absurd extension of that sort of thing. Uh, it's called The Negotiator from 1998, directed by F. Gary Gray. You can rent the film on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. 
And I'll get to the office politics thing at the end here, but let's just get through the premise, which is just a perfect high concept action movie. Hostage negotiator, framed for murder. So he has to prove his innocence by taking people hostage. <laughs> you know, so that, you know, Samuel L. Jackson plays the negotiator, and Kevin Spacey is the guy he calls to act as his hostage negotiator, essentially. This guy he doesn't really know other than meeting him one time at like a random case. And the, the reason he calls, I don't, I guess I shouldn't spoil it. There, there's, a, there's a whole backstory here that kind of comes out. Uh, Sam Jackson has the showier role in the movie, but Spacey's good in it too. And it's kind of fun to see him in this because he hasn't made a lot of action movies or thrillers, really. I mean, LA Confidential, I think you could probably call at some points, like at the end of the movie, is kind of an action scene. And but, it's I a mean, thriller ish. But his it's part, also, his parts of it are more of the cop office politics part. Exactly. As well. Yes. Yeah. They absolutely are. Outbreak, yeah. though. Let's not forget. Mm. Yeah. That's like maybe his high action there. High action. Chasing that infected monkey. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, he hasn't made many of them, let's say. Right. And. You know, of all the actors, I was trying to think of this, of all the like big name A-list or B-plus list actors in Hollywood over the last 20 years, how many of them have like held a gun on screen less than Kevin Spacey? You know, he doesn't make a lot of movies where he's shooting guys. You no, know, in this movie, not. he has a gun. He actually shoots it a single time. He, mm. he takes it out of the holster a couple times, but he only shoots it a single time, you know, which is, is interesting. Uh, but the role is still, even though it's an action movie, it's like it's well suited to uh, Kevin Spacey's talents because, again, he's playing a negotiator. He's playing the guy who's sort of kind of keeping the peace, who's kind of weighing all these different things. And he sort of what you were saying about the outsider who's kind of uh, trying to push his way to, cent to the center of, this, of the screen. That's exactly what this movie is actually about because he's brought into this situation – uh, everyone else knows Samuel L. Jackson. His essentially, like all of his friends, are the guys outside, and they're trying to get in and end the situation. And some of them might be trying to kill him. There's a whole conspiracy involved, and he's the guy who keeps trying to wrestle control away from these guys. He's been, I was called here, and I want to do it my way. You know, he's very like he doesn't want to shoot anyone. He wants to talk things out. You know, and and everyone else who's there is very hesitant to do that. Is this your commander or is it his? You had him distracted. We saw an opportunity to end this. We had to take it. No, you put me and those hostages at risk. That's what you did. And that's not how I work. First, we talk. It was my call. We don't feel this man can be talked down. Oh, really? I've been here a half hour. How do you know that? With all due respect, sir, I have kept... A zero casualty rate for five years, precisely because this kind of action is a last resort. This is not your command, Sabian. Yeah, that's right. You know what my command is? To get those people out safely. That's my command! Well, you don't know this man, Lieutenant! Yeah, he has to kind of negotiate, and there is a little bit of a political aspect to it in terms of, like, the office politics. And actually, there's even more to it when you consider, like... Essentially, the office politics at this particular Chicago precinct have gotten so bad, they want to kill Samuel L. <laughs> Jackson. So it's like the extreme of that. Uh, I just rewatched the movie today. It's aged pretty well. It's a very satisfying thriller. It has some lovely twists, some excellent acting. And beyond uh, Sam Jackson and Kevin Spacey, just a fabulous uh, sort of like Margin Call. It's like every actor in this movie is good. They're not quite as famous as the Margin Call cast, but just great character actors. David Morse, J.T. Walsh, uh, Siobhan Fallon, Ron Rifkin, John Spencer, and Paul Giamatti is one of the hostages 
one of his, his earlier roles this is after Private Parts, but it's still early in his career. But he's the comic relief. He gets he gets all the funniest parts. He's really funny, and it's it, it still comes down to that you know that chess game between Spacey and Jackson. And I was thinking about this as I was watching it, and thinking about how few action movies Kevin Spacey has made, and how dumb so many action movies are, and not not necessarily in a bad way. They're just brainless. They're fun. They're entertaining. And here, you know, this is a movie about smart people. It may not be the most brilliant movie, but the characters in it, they're smart. Like, part of the fun of the movie is Sam Jackson is a hostage negotiator. He knows what they're going to try to do to beat him. He knows all their tricks and tactics. So it becomes that chess game, and you need smart people or people who can at least play smart on screen. And that's something that Kevin Spacey does do well, as we've already said, playing that smart guy. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, that sounds like something that should be pretty simple to do, but I think in practice it's it's harder than it looks. So it's a it's a fun it's a fun thriller. I don't think it's one of his best movies, but I do think it's it's one you could pretty much throw on any time and be entertained. If you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth at least one watch. It's The Negotiator, and you can rent it on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. For those of us climbing to the top of the food chain, there can be no mercy. There is but one rule. Hunt or be hunted. Welcome back. Well, that brings us to our listener's choice section. Every episode, we give you three options to choose from, and we review... Our main review is based on your votes, and we gave you three TV options this time around. The first seasons of FX's The Americans and A&E's Bates Motel, and the second season of Netflix's House of Cards, which went live in its entirety on February 14th. It was a close race between The Americans and House of Cards, but House of Cards pulled off the win. Created for television by Bo Willimon, the writer of The Ides of March, House of Cards is based on a BBC miniseries, but has been greatly expanded into what's now two 13-episode seasons, tracing the machinations of Frank Underwood, played by Kevin Spacey, who at the start of this second season has managed to connive his way from House Majority Whip to Vice President of the United States with the help of his equally ruthless wife, Claire, played by Robin Wright. Many characters from the second season return for the second, though not all of them fare that well. The figurative and literal body count is higher in the second season than the first. Among the new characters introduced are Molly Parker as representative Jacqueline Sharp, whom Frank helps get selected as his replacement in the house. There's also Terry Chen as Xander Feng, a Chinese billionaire. Derek Cecil as Seth Grayson, a highly effective, if not so trustworthy, political operative. And Jimmy Simpson as a hacker named Gavin Orsay. We discussed the first season in episode number 28, which is also the episode we did live from Videology, so you can go back and revisit that episode. As I recall, Matt, we both had some reservations about the show then. So my first question for you is, do you like it more now, having watched all of the second season? Yes, I do. I enjoyed the second season of House of Cards more than I enjoyed the first season. And uh, I haven't read a ton of reaction to the show, but I've seen a little bit on Twitter and stuff. And people seem to not like it that much. What I've seen, I've, re- I've seen some pretty mixed reactions. And I thought this one was a big step above the first one. And the reason is, 
the first season to me felt like it was attempting to be this sort of like behind the scenes of of politics of Washington D.C. What it's really like, Kevin Spacey playing this Washington insider and using that fourth wall breaking device, talking directly to camera, kind of bringing us into this world and showing us what it's really like. And that was kind of mixed with these sort of very outrageous plot twists, especially in the later half of the season, which didn't really seem to fit. And I also didn't think the show really understood what was going on in Washington. Like, it didn't really feel, like, authentic. You know, it felt like it thought it was smarter or more insightful than it was. This season, they've abandoned any pretense of trying to show you what Washington, D.C. is really like, and they have basically just become a tawdry soap opera, and I love it. I do, too. It's 1600 (laughs) Melrose Place. That's what you're watching here. It's just total... It's like the classiest sleaze. It's just it's sleaze dressed up in beautiful cinematography and fine actors. I think the cast in general is better this season. Some of the new actors they brought in are very good. And I just enjoyed the hell out of it. I mean, I thought in almost every way, except in the quote-unquote realism department, I thought this was an improvement. I did too. I I feel like it has abandoned a lot of the need to – the self-seriousness of the first season. exactly. And it no longer feels like a show that is – striving so hard for importance and one that's just enjoying itself a lot more. Yes. And I think that that is definitely much more fun to watch. Right. So now I should say before we go forward, we're going to try and avoid spoiling major plot developments from later in the season. There is something major that happens at the end of the first episode of the second season that just we can't avoid talking about it. So if you haven't watched any of the second season yet and you want to avoid getting spoiled, I, I would this I would bail on this discussion. Yeah, fast forward to the end of the yes. discussion, I'm afraid. All right. But I so go like we're all good now. Yeah. Let's go forward. Yeah. I actually kind of laughed out loud when Zoe got now, pushed. Like a evil laugh no, of glee. It was like kind of like a shocked laugh, but it was so outrageous a move. Yeah. That you know, having Kate Mara's character and not you know, she was a major part of the first season. Yes. She, she was essentially the second lead or maybe co-second lead with, exactly. with Robin Wright. And, you know, it the, the whole episode sets her up as like reminding us of what's going on in her personal life. And they're looking to be maybe the major antagonists who Frank Underwood will have to battle. Right. And the, the, the journalists. Is she going like, to perhaps join him and like right. work with and him? And he's, you know, reaching out to her again. You're thinking, oh, they're going to maybe go back to this relationship they right. have and all of that. Then he, pushes her in front of the train and she is dead oh so good so good so good (laughs) i didn't laugh but i definitely did a oh and then i think i went something like that yeah yeah we're horrible people and maybe that's why the show appeals to us i feel like that exact glee is what like the enjoyment that you're supposed to be getting from this show i agree i agree yeah and this the series I think at one point, I think it was uh, Sam Adams, who has been a colleague of ours Mm -hmm. uh, and a writer who pointed out the kind of, oh, is this Chinese billionaire supposed to be evil in being introduced having like what's basically like a bisexual bondage (laughs) asphyxiation threesome, uh, you know, and all of that. And it's kind of like every character is introduced like a super villain in this. The, you know, the hacker character played by Jimmy Simpson actually has a guinea pig named Cashew who he strokes. (laughs) He strokes like like a Bond villain. Yes. And And he's one of the least evil characters in in the spectrum of things. There's even, you know, a sequence where the when an episode is devoted to Freddy, mm-hmm. the character who runs the ribs place, yes, and we see him in the morning, and for whatever reason, his morning routine is made to look like American Psycho. <laughs> this is a character who's like you know, 
like one of the these minor and like kind of most benign looking characters and yet even his like every character is, has seems to have like strange you know like obsessive morning routines or strange like unusual sexual practices yeah. like every single character in the show I'm telling you 1600 melrose place that's what it is that's what's been so enjoyable about it yes everyone is so kind of quietly over the top yes i will say one other thing i mean to your uh, i mean the we you mentioned you know shoving poor kate mara in front of a train and i think they even like what they show like the replay in the slow motion yeah and they're like you're not going to want to see this you know to hit her her boyfriend the the reporter who sort of assumes her role in the narrative uh you're you know like the the police show him the footage and they actually show it on screen and there's like a big splat like they they don't even like cut away there's like a legit splat on the train i was like i cannot believe how kind of deliciously evil this mo- this show has gotten, and it really kind of revels in it. Uh, but what I was going to say was that's really, I think, the best example of another thing that I thought was vastly improved about this season that I know we kind of picked on, or at least I did, the first time around, which were the cliffhangers. The cliffhangers in the first season, I didn't think were all that great. And this, we're talking about a show where they put 13 episodes in front of you all at once, and they're sort of inviting you to binge watch it, which is something we can talk more about. And uh, honestly, the first time around, I had some trouble kind of forcing myself to keep watching through the middle, you know, episodes like four through eight or nine when another one of those big twists happened. Uh, that middle portion, I was kind of like, this isn't that good. It's And it's just it's not even that. It's just not propulsive. It's like right. to make you want to keep watching episode after episode. This one, I, I watched the whole thing with my wife and we watched in like three or four sittings the whole season, like over that weekend, over that yeah. long weekend, they came out like three episodes, four episodes, four episodes, three episodes, and we were just into it. Like another one, another one. Like it was just, they do a much better job, I think, of pacing the series and keeping things happening, keeping, you know, sometimes really absurd and ridiculous, but lots of juicy uh, stuff happening to keep your attention, to keep you want to keep watching those episodes. Yeah. So here's a question for you. I, I, I've seen people bringing up some people who did not like the show, even uh, bringing up, say, like the West Wing, and kind of as an example of this like great idealist, uh, you know, series of, right. um, that that depicted politics as kind of maybe we would have wished them mm-hmm. this uh, and and this as a contrast of being like this is what we have now. But I feel like this series speaks to a lot of frustrations that people have with politics today as well. I mean, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, it's also. A, a kind of political fantasy, except with someone who basically just cuts through all like BS and destroys things mm-hmm. and takes down people ruthlessly. I, you know, the scene in which Kevin Spacey's character pushes a bull, bill through Senate, like, like actually having people dragged into the Senate yes. to it's, force it, the vote. It's like evil Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And I have to say that scene was so like so satisfying, right. you know. But again, completely absurd. Completely absurd. But I mean, you know, it, it does seem to, like watching that, I'm like, we've just come off of like having the least productive Congress right. of all time. Yeah, that's interesting. That, that, that seems to me to really speak to, we don't want idealism. We right. want someone who can like, ruthlessly right exactly and that's what that's what frank underwood does is like there that's interesting because he's so evil and villainous and he's a he's a murderer he's a straight-up murderer yes and yet he he, he manages a fairly good politician he is he's good at his job yeah he gets stuff done yeah so did you think i mean 
there is basically there's like a particular and i mean there are many many antagonists in this but mm. there's like one particular antagonist raymond tusk yes but i mean did you feel that the underwoods were too good at what they were doing you know they take like out they a weren't lot. like they're not evenly matched like raymond tusk isn't a good enough villain yeah i mean like he was the closest thing to an even match but yeah. they take out a lot of people in this season in different ways they do and i guess i i would imagine for someone who doesn't enjoy it as, as much as i did i think that's probably a fair criticism is that they it's like they're you know like i was i think we referred to kevin spacey earlier as like the smartest guy in the room and in sometimes in house of cards it seems like he's the only smart guy in the room like there's a lot of kind of people who aren't smart enough including the president of the united states who seems a little a little naive. a little naive yeah. yeah a little dumb and a little naive uh that may also feed into perhaps some voters opinions of our current <laughs> political state as well uh i'm gonna leave that there but yeah i think occasionally the their opponents maybe aren't worthy of 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 them but i think it's so much fun to watch them work and i think occasion i think there are times where you do feel like raymond tusk is is a wor- fairly worthy adversary and they they do some stuff that's pretty underhanded themselves yeah where you're kind of you know if it was a w- completely one-sided battle it wouldn't be as entertaining i don't think Do yeah, you agree i agree i i think i what i liked about also tusk as a character is that as much as i don't think the show is a particularly incisive commentary on many political realities other than what i mentioned before about this being kind of fantasy about the ultimate politician who can get things done no matter what yeah it is interesting to see the character of tusk as this antagonist he's basically a billionaire who's buying political influence and like has not does not have to answer to you know he's not a political figure he's not elected so he has nothing to answer to in that and it becomes a really interesting damning portrait of him as some a guy who's so used to getting his way and in this way that's you know very immoral as well you know uh that i that was interesting to me right i mean i don't think this is a show that invites very deep readings but there definitely is a theme in this season about money and power and the difference between them and yeah. there are some characters who are explicitly there to tease that out i think that the like their pr representative who sort of joins the the cast yeah. the, there's actually seth. two of them seth yeah there's two of them in the show but the second one who joins their staff specifically you know and his and we don't want to spoil too much you know for people who are still going through the season but like his allegiances are sort of in question and at one point he gives this sort of speech where he says like I could have the money, but I realize that if I do this, I'll have power. And to me, that's more important. And and that really becomes the question of the season is which is more powerful. Right. It's power. Literal, they have a literal battle between right. power. Raymond and Tusk's money, money and yeah. the power of the White House of being the guy who's sitting next to the president and having his ear. It's like who you know, what ultimately is more powerful. And I think that's moderately interesting. I, again, I don't think that that really is a all that. Theme, yeah. yeah, I don't think that that's that's really thought about too seriously or too deeply, or that you're gonna you know walk away from this ready to write a massive treatise on the subject. Uh, but I did find I certainly think it's there, and I think it's 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 just a well placed theme that fits perfectly with what they're doing on the show this season. Yeah, I agree. I also I you know we've talked about Kevin Spacey, but I think Robin Wright is very yes. good in this. Yeah. She is pretty she manages to not just hold her own but there are some scenes where i feel like she kind of is the even the stronger performer just through 
through this incredible kind of calculation and under poise mm -hmm. she's this very graceful character who is also terrifying right yeah i think she actually benefits and she's fa i think she's fabulous on the show it's interesting because she has less screen time than spacey and she ha doesn't have the device right of she looking at the, the camera yeah. but in some ways that almost makes her the more interesting character because robin wright is so good at not showing what she's feeling or right. how she ult like when she manipulates people we really don't know sometimes what she's thinking, how sincere she is. Sometimes she does things that seem almost altruistic or that she wants to help someone. You know, her her storyline involves this sexual assault sort of uh, and this bill that she wants to have passed. And there are characters and times where she seems like she's doing things to help people and or or just to get the bill passed for a good reason. And you can never quite always tell how evil she's being and you, you kind of default to she's probably being evil because the you know the uh, underwoods are evil but she is so good at at playing those cards not, no pun intended close to her vest you just you're just waiting for her to twist the knife but because she's so good at keeping it in you never you never can quite tell before we wrap it up that is actually one other thing i wanted to mention and ask you about which was the direct address, the talking to the camera. It was something that definitely was kind of, I think, criticized the first season. Maybe it was overplayed. And they almost seem to address that in this season by the first episode. He doesn't speak to the camera the whole episode. And then at the very end, he has this very dramatic, you know, turn to the camera and like, did you think I forgot about you? And, you know, like, and it's sort of like once again, re as he's done something even more evil, kind of making you even more complicit in his in his evil ways and crimes. <laughs> what did you think about the uh, that you know device last season and and this season? It struck me as a little too theatrical. Oftentimes in the first season, mm -hmm. it's something that I liked part of the time, and I and other times I was like, it, it, it felt a little too much. Mm -hmm. But I think that it suits the more over the top theme of the second of the second season much more right i mean and it also as when the show's not leaning really hard to be like you are complicit in these things and more to be like you're a co-conspirator isn't this fun yes you know? yes like or like can you believe this guy which is like yeah, I, I i like that the second season cuts away some of the amounts of like the director direct address for just like looks to the camera like uh, kevin spacey will do these kind of exasperated or like knowing glances <laughs> yeah. at the camera and it's it's a lot of times it's been like check this idiot out you right. know or something like that right. and that there's something very fun about that yes. you know it, i think it's a little it, it's got a bit more light lightness to it yeah i think yeah. I, I agree i think they underplayed it a little more this time they don't use quite as much of it sometimes it's almost like a line here or a line there at the end of a scene. And you talked about it being theatrical. I thought sometimes maybe it got a little too theatrical. He starts quoting, you know, like famous, whatever, Shakespeare or just famous quotations. It, it just in a way that seemed a little, again, maybe bringing back that wanting to be important in a way that I think this show isn't and shouldn't try to be. Right. By trying to sort of quote famous works of literature or whatever. It's just like, just own up to the fact that you're just a tawdry soap opera just exactly. live in that but i but i you you i think you really hit it it's that it it moves it from being kind of complicit in the last season to being kind of a co-conspirator in this season and it makes it a little bit more fun when it feels like you're part of the evil and the other thing i was started to wonder by the end of the season when 
and I won't spoil anything here, but just like how extreme his actions get and the things he's willing to do to get what he wants, I began to feel like he's legitimately like diagnosably insane. And there is no, like, we aren't like, it's not that there's a camera there. He's just talking to the voices <laughs> in his head. And it's yeah. like, it's like an expression of his madness. And I found that to be quite satisfying and believable for his character. So I like that. Yeah. It's an interesting read. I feel like, it's funny, as this show has gone along, even though his actions have become more and more extreme, I feel like the show normalizes them in a way <laughs> by making everyone else so outrageous in their own way as well. Yeah. You know, by having Robin Wright in lockstep, by having even the characters who are seemingly more normal, like Jackie Sharp, have these kind of weird moments. Like, you know, there, there, there's one it's revealed in one of the episodes that she has a tattoo and yes. just her explanation for why she has that tattoo <laughs> is even then you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like weird. even the characters who seem more balanced and to seem to have a bit more of a toehold in the real world, uh, tend to have just kind of odd, odd habits or odd secrets that, uh, you know, are interesting to reckon with. And I, I like that the show portrays DC as this place just filled with sociopaths, basically. A hive basically. of scum and villainy. Exactly. I yeah. really, that's what makes it so fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that is House of Cards. It is currently on Netflix. And, you know, as you can tell, we've both enjoyed the season a lot Bring on more. season three. I'm yes. ready. <laughs> All right, let's wrap things up with our Behind the Eight Ball segment. You know how this goes. We give you three new titles, two listener recommendations, and one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists on Netflix. And uh, yeah, we each give you those. And uh, I think Allison's going first. You ready, Allison? I am ready. Okay, so let's start with three new titles. Okay, first up, new to Fandor is Reality. This is the new film from director Matteo Garoni, who directed Gamora, a film about the Camorra in Naples, and a really interesting one. This is about reality television. Uh, it tells the story of Luciano, who is a fishmonger, who becomes obsessed with the Italian version of Big Brother and becoming, uh, uh, you know, or appearing on it to the point where it starts to cr like crack his sense of reality itself. And it's, you know, been described as a dark comedy. Uh, so that's reality. It is new to Fandor. New to Hulu is Mr. Death, which is the great Errol Morris documentary about Fred A. Lutcher, who made improvements on the electric chair and other forms of execution imprisoned, and then got caught up in a, a scandal involving Holocaust denial. And as always, you know, Errol Morris is able to kind of lift out the stranger and darker parts of people's personalities and in interviews. And this is a great example of that. Let's new to Hulu and new to Netflix. And I have not seen this yet, but I'm very interested in seeing it. Passion, which is the latest film from Brian De Palma. Yeah. It is, as all of his films are described, as Hitchcockian, <laughs> um, a thriller about professional and romantic rivals, played by Rachel McAdams and Numi Rapace from Prometheus. Um, just it was not necessarily widely acclaimed, but Brian De Palma. Nor should it have been. But Brian De Palma is always an interesting filmmaker, even if he's not always. Has it, that one has a few good sequences. All right. Well, it is new to Netflix. Lower so your you expectations. They are very low. You're they streaming it on Netflix. Low. You haven't paid anything. <laughs> That's the right frame of mind to enjoy it. Okay. How about two listener recommendations? All right. We have one from Adrian who writes, "I have a streaming suggestion for you: 
Bigger, Stronger, Faster. It's a documentary about Chris Bell, a competitive weightlifter, who examines the use of performance-enhancing drugs in sports such as wrestling, bodybuilding, and cycling. As a weightlifter, he loses to other competitors because they are juicing. He takes a hard look at the world using examples like his brother, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Sylvester Stallone all of which are his childhood heroes. He struggles with the idea that his heroes cheated. The documentary works because it's examined so well and presented from both sides of pro and anti-steroids. Bell takes a careful approach not to lean either way. The audience decides where they land with the argument. With the latest Alex Gibney hitting VOD recently, the Armstrong lie, this would make an excellent companion in a double bill about cheating. It's a thoroughly entertaining documentary and informative without being manipulative. Sports lover or not, this movie should appeal to any movie lover. It's currently streaming on Netflix. I know that's a film both of us have enjoyed. Yes. Yes. So um, I would second that recommendation. And Kyan writes in, so I'm a New Zealander. Love that you guys took aside a whole episode last year to feature New Zealand films. But unfortunately, the hands down best New Zealand film to date, in my opinion, Boy, was not available for streaming at the time. I'm sure that's why you guys didn't feature it and not because it was a blind spot for you. It is the highest grossing film in New Zealand's local box office history, and it is also our best. It is funny. It is emotional and poignant, showing Taika Waititi to be a true artist. He's the third Concord, having written and directed many of the series episodes. It is the rare film that both struck a chord with audiences, which actually got QEs to return multiple times to the cinema, which almost never happens, as well as being critically valuable. I honestly don't understand how it failed to get proper distribution in the U.S. Films like Whale Rider got a lot of exposure internationally, but that film has always had a very it's ethnographically valuable for you to see it sort of film, as opposed to being a legitimately good film. This is how I view many of the films funded by the New Zealand Film Commission. Boy feels completely honest and has everything I want from a movie that is currently streaming on Netflix. And it's also new to Fandor if you want to check it out. I will admit it's a blind spot for me. I've heard great things about it. I haven't seen it either. It's one that's been on my my list for a while. Mm. So uh, that does kind of make me want to see it more and maybe actually, you know, get things off of my queue as opposed to just leaving them sit sit there for a while. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of your queue or your my list, how about one random film from your my list? Uh, you gave me number 11, which is a film that I think someone has written in to recommend before. It is Shadow Dancer. This is the film directed by James Marsh, who also is a documentarian as well, and stars Clive Owen, Andrea Riseborough, and Gillian Anderson. And it's about a single mother and IRA terrorist who's captured and faced with either turning on her compatriots or going to prison and also being separated from her child. So it's got a lot of interesting people in it, you know, but uh, so that's how it ended up on my list, but haven't seen it yet. All right, Matt, are you ready? I, mm, uh, all right. Take your time. All right. All right. Three new picks. Okay. First off, how about a little more Kevin Spacey love on the podcast? I think we mentioned it very briefly, but it wasn't one of our picks. Because I think it's a little obvious, and I, I like to pick some less obvious stuff, but why not a brief plug here for The Great L.A. Confidential, which is newly streaming on Amazon Prime. It's, of course, the great adaptation of James Elroy's epic crime novel about Los Angeles in the 1950s, and three cops, played by Kevin Spacey, Russell Crowe, and Guy Pierce, who team up to take down a massive conspiracy. One of my all-time favorites and a great Kevin Spacey performance. He's uh, yet another uh, suave manipulator, as you pointed out. More office politics there. He plays Jack Vincennes. He's the LAPD's liaison to this uh, Dragnet-style TV show called Badge of Honor. Fabulous movie. It's streaming now on Amazon Prime, LA Confidential. 
And uh, one of our listener uh, listeners there in your section mentioned Alex Gibney, right? I think so. Yeah. I've got my second and third picks are actually an Alex Gibney double feature of documentaries here that are both new on Netflix. Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, which is the phrase I've used on this episode now that I think about it, <laughs> and Casino Jack and the United States of Money. They're both streaming again on Netflix. Uh, Gibney, of course, is the almost too prolific filmmaker behind at least one or maybe even seven films every single year. And they're all well-researched, well-assembled, a little dry, and worth seeing. Uh, Enron was from 2005. That was really his breakthrough film as a, as a director. That one's, of course, about the energy company that crippled California. And Casino Jack is from 2010. That was about the infamous Washington lobbyist Jack Abramoff. And just in a strange bit of coincidence, there is also a fiction film about Jack Abramoff. It's called Just Casino Jack. And it starred who, Allison? Kevin Spacey. It did indeed. <laughs> Everything is connected. Okay, well, uh, two listener recommendations. Okay, this first one is from Mark H. He says, from 1955, I'm recommending Charles Lawton's only directed film, a singular work, uh, due perhaps to its initial poor performance at the box office. Night of the Hunter stars Robert Mitchum in perhaps his most memorable performance. Uh, he plays a religious fanatic who marries a gullible widow whose young children are reluctant to tell him where their real father hid $10,000 he'd stolen in a robbery. And now uh, Mark wrote here, the tagline is, begs for a patented Matt Singer voice. So I guess I have to give him a patented Matt Singer voice. Do it. <clears throat> the wedding night, the anticipation, <laughs> the kiss, the knife, but above all, the suspense. Beautiful. Thank you. Night of the Hunter has an 8.1 rating on IMDb and 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's available for streaming uh, rental rental now on amazon itunes google play voodoo and youtube i know svu is a streaming show but i should also give a plug to the two disc blu-ray set from the criterion collection it might be the most gorgeous black and white film i've ever seen so that was uh, night of the hunter uh, rentable on all those places and recommended by mark h and I've, we've got a recommendation here from andy m he says i just watched that guy who was in that thing an 80-minute documentary on netflix about character actors in hollywood and was pleasantly surprised they interview about a dozen of these guys, most of whom are recognizable if you're a film lover, but whose names mostly escape us. Their faces are recognizable once you look up their names, and then the light bulb turns on and you remember their roles. People like Zach Grenier, Xander Berkeley, Gregory Itzen, uh, and so on. It's a fun game. Mention a character actor's name and see if you can name anything they've been in. They discuss the ups and downs, the many joys and struggles of pursuing an acting career, and the kinds of sacrifices and compromises they must make to do so. I think it's a relatable and inspiring film for anyone who wishes to pursue a creative life without the comforts and guarantees of the world of 9 to 5. So that's The Guy Who Is In That Thing, streaming on Netflix, and that was recommended by Andy M. Okay, one from your my list. You gave me number 29, which is the film Sound of Noise, which was a popular film from Fantastic Fest a few years ago. I somehow never saw it. Did you see it, Alice? Yeah, I like this one a it's lot. It's supposedly really fun, yeah, right? it's really fun. I've just never gotten around to seeing it. This is the Netflix description. In this absurdist comedy, only a tone-deaf, music-hating detective can stop a band of renegade percussionists who are terrorizing a Swedish city using their surroundings, including the populace, as instruments to create sonic chaos so they're like sort of like goofy it's like music. a heist movie but with like crazy public uh musical performances using things like um everyday objects essentially yes. so it's sort of like stomp yeah but like Swedish crazier. stomp yeah 
but crazier. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, it sounds great. Sound uh, great. No pun intended. And uh, everyone who's seen it, you know, said it's a lot of fun. I just, I don't know. I've never gotten around to seeing it. it this opportunity hasn't come up. So, but it's on my, it's on my, my list. So hopefully I'll get to see it at some point. Allison, are you ready to uh, go through our next options for our listener's choice review? I am. All right. You have the first one. What is it? I do. It is Broken Circle Breakdown, which is currently available on Amazon Prime to stream. This is one of the foreign language film nominees. So maybe it'll be a winner by the time it's uh, chosen. Um, if it's chosen, but uh, it's a film, a Belgian film set uh, exploring the lives of two, a couple who meet and they fall in love. They have a passion for bluegrass music and they have a daughter who develops cancer and it is meant to be apparently emotionally devastating and amazingly acted. And it's got a lot of fans. It was, um, it's one of those films that I've heard great things about and haven't gotten to see yet. So it's one that I would love to see directed by Felix Van Groningen. And Nicely done. Thank you. So that one's available on Amazon Prime. Okay. Our next option is uh, another foreign film that got a lot of acclaim last year. It's called Wajida. It's available for rental on iTunes and Amazon, and it's directed by Haifa Al-Mansur. And I believe Allison had this as one of her picks for our opening break segment on our last episode. It was available on VOD, and she talked a little bit about it. It was Saudi Arabia's first ever submission for... Uh, the foreign language film Oscar. It didn't end up getting a nomination, but it was their official submission this year. And it's also the first film from Saudi Arabia from a female director. And it's about a young girl named Wajida. She wants to own a bicycle, which in Saudi Arabia, because she's a girl, eh, that's a big deal. And it's about uh, the role of gender in society there. And because the director, we we talked about this on that episode, that because the director is a woman, she actually at times had to direct her cast from a van, essentially, like by a radio, because, you know, women are not allowed on the street to be talking to men, I guess, directing them around, right? Is that essentially the gist of it? I think that it? is part of it, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah. yeah, so, but beyond that sort of, like, interesting hook, it's supposed to be a fabulous film. It's yeah. not just, you know, like, oh, this is, a, you know, notable for the, the fact that it was directed by a woman. It's supposed to be a very good film as well. So I, I've heard nothing but good things about this one as well. And it was one, I think I might have even said this two weeks ago, like this was like the number one movie I regretted not being able to see uh, before I had to make my top 10 list last year. So I'm really looking forward to catching up with that one as well. So that's Wajida and it's available for rental on iTunes and Amazon. Uh, And our third pick, I've heard a lot of bad things about as well as some good (laughs) things. It is The Counselor, which is available uh, for rental on Amazon and some other places. There's not just uh, the theatrical cut. There's also an unrated extended cut. And I think that if we did go with uh, if this one did win, I would kind of push for us to do the unrated extended cut. Who knows what material that might contain? (laughs) We might have to do a second listener's choice poll if this one wins to determine which version. Which cut do we? Yeah, yeah, but um, you know, the counselor is, of course, the 2013 film directed by Ridley Scott, written by Cormac McCarthy, the great novelist. This is his first original screenplay. Stars Michael Fassbender as the titular character, who is never named beyond that. There are drug deals. There's Cameron Diaz having sex with a car. Javier Bardem, Penelope Cruz, Brad Pitt. Um, you know, extremely divisive, but that always makes for an interesting film and discussion. I have not seen it yet. Me I'm neither. really looking forward to yep. seeing it. So, uh, uh, you know, if that one wins, I think that'll be a lot of fun as well. Yes. So, which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick 
to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. Or, of course, you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, March 3rd at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you will have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be on or around Tuesday, March 11th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all of the movies and TV series we discussed on the show. Filmspotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review that you pick. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each episode's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you, the SVU listeners. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.